How do you do? The Box Office Pulp Board feels it would be a little unkind to present this podcast without just a word of friendly warning. We're about to unfold a cinematic commentary track, made by a group of men who sought to create a podcast after their own ravings, without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with three great mysteries of the internet, analysis, observation, and deconstruction. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel you'd not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now's your chance to... Well, we've warned you. Now, to pause and refresh. For your convenience, we have an attractive refreshment stand in the lobby, with buttered popcorn, golden good and hot from the popper, your favorite candies, wholesome and rich, plus delicious Dr. Pepper, so bright and bracing with a tang and tingle unmatched by any other beverage. Enjoy an ice-cold Dr. Pepper at our beverage stand right now, and then return to fully appreciate this bop and a movie commentary track. Enjoy. I do my killing before breakfast. Seven o'clock. Eight o'clock. I do my killing after breakfast. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Box Office Pulp, your one-stop podcast for movies, madness, moxie, and tonight, one last blast from the past with a bop in a movie. That's right, we're finally closing out our Back to the Future commentary series with Back to the Future Part 3. And I say this, they'll probably announce a Back to the Future Part 4 like tomorrow, just to spite me. Then we'll have to come back and do a co- another commentary in like three years. Anyways, I'm your host, Cody. Joining me for this last trip is Mike. Say hello. This movie's very dark when you stop and consider that Throughout the entire film, every time you see Doc or Marty in the Old West, they've just come from wiping their ass with corn cobs. <laughs> Tis the past. And my other co-host, Jamie, pretend you're a cowboy. I am actually a big fan of manure. It's weird, and I don't care if it makes me weird. Super. S- super. Wow, we are just awash and shit. Like, first 30 <laughs> seconds in. <laughs> Just like the Old West. We did it, guys. Hey! We're on theme. This is the fastest we've gotten on theme with a the movie. Uh, well, far be it from me to escape that. Uh, before we start the commentary, folks, let me tell you about the official drink for this evening. I remembered. <laughs> that's right, goddammit. We're all drinking. Uh, <laughs> this one's simple, folks. It's a mule skinner. What you're going to do is get three ounces of whiskey, preferably rye whiskey, uh, and three ounces of blackberry liqueur. Like a, a chambered will work. Uh, I didn't have that, and I was too lazy to go to the store. So I'm actually drinking blackberry brandy mixed in with whiskey. Uh, we'll find out if that was a good choice or not in just a second. Also, if you want to get super fancy, get yourself uh, a little bit of mint just as garnish. To make this drink, stay with me, folks. You're going to take the whiskey and the blackberry liquor, drop it into a mixing glass like a just a regular old pint glass, throw in two ice cubes, stir to cool, and uh, drink it. All there is to it. Simplest thing in the world. Uh, according to the internet, this was a cowboy drink. I don't know if I believe that, but, uh, well, we're doing a cowboy movie, so we'll have a fake cowboy drink. 
Uh, I'm kind of scared to drink this one because it's just six ounces of straight liquor. Like, there, there's no mixer in here. Come, come right, on. Do it. Go blind. Go blind. Go blind. Go blind. Ooh. It's actually not terrible, but wow, that's a sipper. Uh, I love the that idea one, one... of of Cody being an old in an old old west saloon, taking uh taking a drink, going um, amongst cowboys, going hmm, that's a that's a sipper. <laughs> then getting and his then he ass falls beat. straight through a table. <laughs> <laughs> Did you drop me into the middle of City Slickers Four or something? <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa! When did we miss City Slickers 3? <laughs> I'm going off of Jaws 19 logic. Like, there's probably going to be more by the time this happened, right? I like the idea that Cody's logic is, no, no, there would be a good third one, and then I'd be the downturn. <laughs> right, yeah. This like, is like the well, direct-to-video spinoff, like when they did uh, Kid Ace Ventura. I want to live in the world where that somebody convinces Billy Crystal to put on the spurs one last time. Come on, Daniel Stern isn't doing anything else. Everything else is getting legacy sequels. Let's make it happen. Also, John Lovitz uh, exists. Folks at home, do not put three ounces and three ounces of that together. You're going to end up like with a lot of booze in a glass. You don't need that. <laughs> Cut that in half. Do like a one and a half and a one and a half. I feel like you could describe all of your themed drinks that way, though. That's a lot of booze in a glass. No, nah, well, at least the other ones have some orange juice or something to help help thin it out. This one is just uh, hard liquor. I'm so glad you never tried these beforehand, so that way you can give the recipe, try it, and then immediately walk it back 30 seconds later. <laughs> this one isn't bad. It's just very strong. Actually, I really like the way the blackberry is a subtle uh, kind of closing taste on the whiskey. It comes together very well. I, I'm just a wussy who really enjoys, like, the taste of sugar. So I like stuff that, you know, mostly apple juice or pineapple. <laughs> Kindred spirits there. <laughs> Anyways, folks at home, if you want to be a real cool, tough guy, you can make yourself a mule skinner or not. Let's move forward with our lives. <laughs> so Mike is going to, uh, if you're randomly walking into our part three commentary first and you don't know how commentaries work, let me explain. We're going to watch the movie. We're going to talk over the movie. And you can watch along with us if you so choose. Or treat this as like a two-hour-long normal podcast. It's your life. You run it the way you want. Uh, so, Mike, will you do this downers of counting us down into Back to the Future Part 3? Okay. One. Two. Three. And that's the power of love, baby. <laughs> First thing. God damn! I am a sucker for the nostalgia of seeing all the different <laughs> Universal logos. It's oh the yeah! Easiest way to get me excited about a movie. Like, hey, remember when you were a child and Universal looked like this? <sighs> it's funny. You always associate uh, nostalgic stuff like this, like with brands, with what we're doing today. But no, this this happens about every fifteen years or so. I would have to check that out. I wonder how many times they've changed the Universal logo. Like, I'm not sure if we just saw them actually go through all the ones that they had available or if they just hit the highlights. There had to have been, like, a logo they used for, like, a year and a half before they realized they actually had, you know, like, Uranus up there instead of Earth or something. Look, I will always be bitter that it is not eternally the Scott Pilgrim Universal logo. I know. That's the logo of the future, goddammit. I am a huge sucker, too, for any time a studio allows people to just tweak the logo to fit with the movie theme. 
I don't know why. It's a silly thing, but when you're like, oh my god, look, the Disney castle has London behind it for Mary Poppins. Ah! I love it. Oh, one of my favorite recent examples is still uh, Ralph doing the 20th Century Fox fanfare in the Simpsons movie. That's the best joke in the movie. <laughs> still fucking kills me every time. Uh, while we're doing the recap of part two here, let's uh, get our Back to the Future facts out of the way. <laughs> They're identical to the last two movies. I don't know why I'm still saying them. Directed by Robert Zemeckis. Screenplay <laughs> by it. Bob Gale. Cast, Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd, Lee Thompson, Tom Wilson. Uh, music, Alan Silvestri. Cinematography, Dean Cundy. Uh, same editors, Arthur Schmidt and Harry Karamitis. We get to new stuff now. It was released May 25th, 1990, about six months after Part 2 came out. And the budget was, again, $40 million. Uh, the return on that was uh, $244.5 million. A little bit of a step down from Part 2. Uh, but that's not too big of a surprise, considering the previous entry came out less than a year before this one. There, there was... Uh, I imagine some amount of burnout in fans. Well, they did piss all those people off by throwing a to-be-concluded at the end. Yeah. Like I was mentioning before that my dad just saw Infinity War, he was also very confused by that. He did not realize there was another Avengers coming out in, like, a month. So he got to the end of Infinity War, and he's like, what the hell was this? I, I just watched two <laughs> hours, and it's just, that's it? <laughs> I I love the idea of your dad being the one person on Earth who was trolled by that. No! Vision! <laughs> this can't be how it ends! <laughs> what a bummer for the MCU. It just ends that way, permanently. So, one of the things I really appreciate doing the deep dive research into these movies is actually paying attention to the amount of work that goes into some of these shots. If I was just watching this movie, I wouldn't think twice about what we're currently seeing and how they pulled it off. But the camera pans over the scene. We get a, a change in from the stormy night to the you know dry day. There's that time elapse dissolve. They track through this whole thing. Like it's it's actually pretty darn tricky, especially since this is 1990. But unless someone shows you that they had to do a lot of work to make that happen, you'd never consider that to be a big effect. Now, Zemeckis is the master of the invisible special effect. Something I, I really appreciate about his directing style. Yeah, and, until looking up, I always assumed this shot was uh, just kind of conked in there in post. I didn't know it was just an in-camera effect. With the camera they invented on the last movie that they then <laughs> used for, for that shot, the Vista Glide. It turns out the entire thing was rotoscoped. Did the same thing, just like a lightsaber. <laughs> they just and brought in a round back sheet. It's <laughs> amazing especially, work. Especially when the uh, house looks vaguely like it's a miniature that's been placed on top of a different shot. It really <laughs> does. That's just how weird looking that house is. So we just saw his credit. So can we talk for a moment about what I think is inarguably Alan Silvestri's best score of the trilogy? Like, listen to that. This opening, one, the score is, is, is great, but I love the change of pace we get from part two. Part two is a get-up-and-go movie. Like, it immediately picks up from the ending of one, and the characters rush through several different time periods, 
there's almost no time for anyone to sit down and reflect. Part three, after the recap, has this quiet scene where Doc's just taking a nap, Marty's resting his feet on the hoverboard, and you get a different sound out of Silvestri than you have in the other movies. It's it's very kind of pensive. I love it. It's it's a great way to cleanse your palate after all the, the Russian chasing of part two and get into a different movie. I think it's really cool as far as the score goes that Silvestri went in actually a lot of opposite directions and didn't the music doesn't really sound particularly Back to the Future esque throughout there, other than the main theme playing and a couple a couple bits and bobs. And that he just scored it like it's a whole new movie. It's very reminiscent of what the work he was about to do in Forrest Gump. And goddamn, his his Back to the Future theme in this one, the the Western theme, is just Sylvester scoring. If the genre of the Western had a score. It would exactly, be the Back to the Future man. score. It's so good. Like that score is what I think about when I think about old westerns, despite it existing in the nineties. Which is so perfect. And it is one of the, like great, the greatest movie earworms ever. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 love, I love how Doc must always treat Marty like he's some kind of Cronenberg horror character. Ah, oh, my best friend, get out of here! I just, I want to no know... No saying you time-traveled in this time-travel movie? <laughs> Impossible! I want to know, like, what... Okay, what's the version of this story in which Doc is correct here and Marty's lying? Yeah, I just appeared here <laughs> for no reason, Doc. Gotcha. April Fool's. I'm a wood nymph. I'm small. <laughs> I think he thinks that Marty is some kind of agent of the time police that's for like taking the form of his best friend, like like the black racer on the flash. Future baby sent me. No <laughs> So one thing that really bothered me about the ending of two was Marty reading that letter out in an open rainstorm. Like you fool, you're destroying those letters. Get in the car. I'm very glad they took the time to show those letters being dried out by the fireplace so Doc could actually read them. Very small continuity touch, but someone was paying attention. Oh, Zemeckis is such a friggin' continuity nerd. It's what makes these movies feel so cohesive. Like, it wasn't until I rewatched this uh, for the commentary I noticed Marty throwing away the burnt-up car oh, yeah. that fell off the track in the first movie. Well, all the, all the little stuff here, like he just put on Doc's mind-reading helmet from the first film. If you look around this garage, they, they did a great job of recreating all the stuff that you would have noticed in the first film. Yeah, it's amazing that this is a recreation of the first set and not just something put in storage. Yeah. I do love Marty just fucking with things in the background because he's had a really long goddamn day. <laughs> <laughs> He deserves to just hang out in the 50s for afternoon. That's the nice thing here. There's no real urgency. They can just go back in time whenever they want to save Doc. Yeah, Marty's like, read the not letter like, at this point, so... Yeah, the guy's been dead, you know, for decades already. There's no rush. We can, we can take, like, a week here if we want. Which... It's a little counterintuitive. You you would assume in a dramatic movie you would want as much urgency as you can pack in, especially for part three, the the big climax and finale. 
But I feel the opposite holds way more power. Them just getting time to appraise the situation, kind of goof off of each other, makes me appreciate this much more. They're, they're setting up a new thing of stakes for yeah. one specific movie instead of trying to make this part of an overarching big deal. And it places more emphasis on the time crunch in the third act, which would kind of get lost in the shuffle if it were a, holy shit, we have to save Doc Brown right now story in the first act. <laughs> Can someone tell me what this chess ma machine is right here? You don't what, want to know. What, what does that have to do with the dog playing chess? <laughs> it's a three seashells. The world wasn't meant to know. <laughs> Your friend in time. Dracula. <laughs> God, I, I have always adored what a love letter to these two characters, Doc Brown in particular, this movie is. Yeah. It's one of the few times a, a film series has been able to get away with just kind of looking to the camera and saying, hey, don't you love these guys? Don't you love that these guys are friends? <laughs> Aren't you emotionally involved in these movies at this point? No, I'm dead inside. Uh, to back up just a little bit here, I, I really enjoy the fact that Marty mentions Einstein is your dog. Doc, and Doc just gives this look like I named my dog Einstein, like he just is disgusted with his future self, but then he immediately <laughs> renames the dog Copernicus. Like He does the exact same stupid thing, but in his mind, no, this is noble. It's Copernicus, that's a real scientist, not that Einstein fella. <laughs> not Johnny come lately. <laughs> also, I've been obsessed with Doc Brown saying, we may have to blast. <laughs> Cut to explosions. <laughs> Greatest thing ever. Why was uh, that the intro to our show? Can we can we just rewrite the uh, opening jingle for Box Office Pulp? God damn it, should have been. <laughs> we can throw it in there every now. Episode, every episode opens with an explosion. <laughs> okay, this is one of the coolest things, I think, that's ever been put on the film, which is the idea of unearthing a future time machine. <laughs> <laughs> That's like a the, car from yeah, the like the visual the of that is so set from the old awesome. west. <laughs> That's what I like about like what Zemeckis and Gale did with the time travel shit is they do cool stuff with this you never see in other time travel stories. Uh, yeah, I think it's very <laughs> telling that Jules Verne is all over this movie because this is such an old sci-fi story with all those cool adventure tropes just thrown into a comedy. I, I just have this mental image of them breaking open that wall and instead of the DeLorean, it's just the skeleton of Bruce Willis from Looper. <laughs> <laughs> Holding gold. <laughs> oh, gold in one hand and the other, a napkin with a diagram on it explaining how time travel works. <laughs> Great Scott! Now, that's how Doc Brown made the flux capacitor. But, uh, you, you bring up an interesting point about like the tone of the movie, with, like just all of the time travel ideas and like, the adventure stuff. Is it just me, or of all the movies, does this feel like this is the one that feels the most like a classic Disney live-action movie? Considering how Dark 2 kind of went with, you know, 
alternate universe 85 Biff destroying the world. I think in comparison, this one, it, it looks even lighter than it actually is. Yeah. The big plot point here is, you know, there's a bad guy with a gun who wants to murder our heroes. Uh, but it, it doesn't feel that dark, even though... Think of it this way. In the first movie, Biff doesn't want to murder anyone. He just wants to sexually assault people. That's pretty dark. Uh, another tradition, the dramatic rave reveal. <laughs> Can't be Back to the Future without one of these. The movie's, um, like, has dark stuff in it, but only when you dig deeper into subtextual layers. They seem to have very purposely kind of chugged that stuff down a little bit after two to let this one be more of a kind of rip-roaring adventure type film. Yeah, it's a good old-fashioned western murder, which does barely count. Yeah. It's definitely the most innocent of the three movies. Like, it feels practically PG. Doc, you're a man of science. It is my dream to be shot in the back over a matter of $80, just so I can have that on my tombstone. I really like that they bothered putting that on his tombstone. (laughs) Also, wasn't this They want future generations to know this is sad. (laughs) But uh, wasn't this rated PG? I believe so. Yes, yes it was. Oh, excuse the hell out of me. That's it's, it's kind of a weird thought, again, looking back to the first two ones, that the final entry in this franchise is a PG family movie. But it's like the first one's, I mean, I, I, people refer to the first one as like a sex comedy, but not really. Um, yeah, there's not really a lot of sex there. It's not a porky situation. There's no. just that kind of taboo sexual thing of, of mother and son. Yeah, it's more of just this unique, you know, I guess maybe vaguely screwball comedy in a way. And the second one yeah. is a dark sci-fi picture, and this one is a family western with a sci-fi tinge. Yeah. Again, it's amazing considering two and three were filmed back-to-back that you get stories that are so separate so stylized differently. like <laughs> They don't seem like the things they would have made right next to each other. Part of that, too, in my mind, is just the massive difference in quality between the two films. It's all the like exact same crew and talent, and yet two, I think of as a uh, total backfire. But three is phenomenal. I really enjoy three. It's like Kill Bill 1 and 2. I really enjoy both Kill Bills, though. I mean, I like Kill Bill 2 as well, I'm just saying. Yeah, tonally they Oh very they, separate. There's a there's a breakneck one eighty there. Oh yeah. <laughs> so this is this is a wonderful little piece here. Marty thinks of westerns, he thinks of Clint Eastwood, like the spaghetti westerns. Doc, being in the fifties, probably thinks of, you know, the, the westerns of the forties and fifties, like John Wayne kind of stuff. So his interpretation of what the past is is colored by what he knows from media. So he dresses Marty up like a uh, kind of joke cowboy. Like When he gets to the past, he realizes how poorly he's dressed for that reality. 
But to to Doc, that was reality. That's how it should be. That's what he knows from movies and books. I like that Doc felt the need to make him specifically an atom cowboy. (laughs) No, you have to go up there and rustle up some science. I like how Doc just had that on hand. (laughs) Also, are you forever mad that this drive-in isn't real? Oh, I know. That looks so cool. One other thing. It didn't occur to me until the last rewatch of this movie that why the hell would Doc have that cowboy shirt, like a specifically embroidered one with science stuff on it? But it's it's actually a great way to set up how much Doc loves science and the past. He made a science-themed cowboy shirt. <laughs> Recreationally, just to have in case he wanted to be a cowboy for a weekend. It's a side of Doc we didn't get until now. It's not like in part one, he's got like a diorama of horses and stuff in the background. But well, I just love how because of <laughs> they one sell it. bullshit throwaway line at the beginning of part one, you can track Doc's fucking love of the Old West. <laughs> it's something that's so endearing. Like, I love that conversation that comes later in the movie between Doc and Clara where he talks about how his interest in science was spurned by just reading Jules Verne adventure stories as a boy. Like, it, it's, I like the subtle character arc between the first movie and this, where going on a science adventure essentially renders Doc a big kid. Because <laughs> he's fully embraced that spirit of adventure by the time Marty comes back to rescue him. Oh yeah, yeah he's totally cool with where he's at. With his science gun. For no reason. Let's just steampunk this gun up a little bit. (laughs) Because he's having a good time of it. Speaking of, I have always, like, of all the car designs, for whatever reason, the steampunk DeLorean in this movie has always been my favorite. Just having bulbs on the hood is amazing. I love the fucking ridiculousness of this scene. And half of it's <laughs> what just are they because, even doing? And part of it's just because it's really funny to have Michael J. Fox yell things in an exasperated manner. <laughs> like five minutes after his big action hero moment. <laughs> That's when you remember, like, oh yeah, it's a comedy. That's that was a setup to a joke. <laughs> Now, you get so used to know. these, like, straight adventure movies, you forget, like, oh, no, they're also comedies. Everything's a joke. <laughs> okay, the metal car went away. Moving on with our lives. They've seen it. They've seen fucking aliens. <laughs> Just cars. <laughs> oh, no, it's John Favreau again. Get out of here. <laughs> See, I like the idea of them riding away and just saying to each other, Fucking white people. (laughs) (laughs) I I just love this. Five seconds after just having him yell, Indians! Have him then do the same thing by yelling, Cavalry! Because that's, because Michael J. Fox... Western stuff! Because Michael J. Fox yelling things is funny. I got some Simpsons level joke writing there. Just like, I just repeat the same joke, like in the same scene. Well, and, and then you follow it up with a fair. 
Like you get the the first two charges, and then immediately followed up with there being arrows stuck in his car, followed by a bear scaring him off. <laughs> it's I love such how we're just quick escalation. <laughs> I love how we're just in the beginning of a Princess of Mars now. <laughs> if only the bear knocked him out, and he woke up. He woke up on Barsoom. <laughs> Same cave. God damn it, Marty! You really got to get a more durable time machine. Lightning strikes, broken fuel lines, fried time circuits. It should have made it out of a fucking DeLorean, man. Bad choice. Been better if it was a fridge. I, the time machine should have been just like a. Yeah, fridge would have worked. Like a lead lined fridge. I was going to say like a gun safe, but then it'd be hilarious that Marty goes back in time, but he doesn't have the keys and he just dies inside of that. <laughs> They find just his skeleton curled up in there. This gay cowboy dies. <laughs> this gay future cowboy. Imagine how weird that would be. You get like a time capsule from the future instead of the past, and you crack it open, there's just a dead time traveler inside. Oh my god, look at the atoms on his shoulders. He's some kind of spaceman. Space cowboy. Also, is it... For some reason, do you forget Seamus is still played by Michael J. Fox in this movie. All the yeah. time. Yeah. Much that shows it. So, there, there's, you know, the famous George Lucas line talking about Star Wars that they're a lot like poetry and that the movies kind of rhyme and you get a lot of the same scenarios kind of played out in a remixed form, which I really enjoy about this movie because it takes tons of stuff from the first movie and plays it or inverts it or just cast it in an old west trope like here marty gets knocked out and he gets taken to recoup at his relative's place the fun thing here though is this time instead of his mom having a hot form it's what is great grandma great great grandma uh and she is not interested in him sexually at all <laughs> so you kind of subvert what was originally there I love the uh, the explanation Gale and Zemeckis bullshitted for why this is not incestuous, which is, that's not Lorraine's ancestor. The McFlies are just attracted exclusively to women who look like Leah Thompson. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a coincidence. My theory is, the further out you get relationship-wise, the less they like you. So if it was like your dad you meet in the past, he's going to be like, oh, I have an instinctive bond with this person. But if it's like five grandpas back, you're going to be like, I don't give a shit about this chode. <laughs> Which is why the baby likes Mr. Eastwood more than the mom. <laughs> it all fits. That's my headcanon. Now, as delightful as Fox is, as Seamus, could you have imagined if this was ye old Crispin Glover? With oh, a bushy mustache. God. Forever lost what a, out. What a different way that character would have been played if that was Crispin Glover as an old-timey cowboy. Can I walk accent. in dressed in a toga? No, Crispin. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no, no. I feel like Seamus would be really into, like, ancient Rome. You, um, it's unfortunate because it's written for Glover. And... You, I, it, it, there's a lot of stuff with this movie I actually kind of didn't realize until I was actually watching all three back to back. 
I took uh, things I took previously as just references. I realized had more of a point to them, and I realized you lose a lot of intention with Seamus not being played by Glover. You have to kind of pretend he's being played by Glover in a lot of ways, like he he he's ye old George McFly, because otherwise, what they're a lot of the symmetry they're playing at doesn't quite get across with Marty kind of switching roles, but also specifically with the ending of when Marty punches out um, a mad dog and it's the, the callback to George punching out Biff. It's the only real time Marty's ever like called back to that moment. And I realized like, Oh, it's, like it's symmetrical with the first film, so it's a callback, but it's also playing on the meaning of the first film, but in a different way. Or, or it's the same action, but two different meanings and coming from two different places. So George punching Biff meant something different personally to George that Marty taught him, but then Marty's learning kind of not the opposite but a similar but in different vein lesson from Seamus, who, and this would come across more if that were Glover as Seamus, but it's kind of lost in translation. Give it 10 years and we'll do a remake of Back to the Future 3 using a Crispin Glover deepfake that I'm sure the internet (laughs) will have paraded and placed in many horrifying porn films. Oh, they just use Grendel from (laughs) Beowulf. Why not? They've already got those models sitting around. Oh, that'd be terrifying. To jump back just a second here, as much as we get nostalgia from going back to past time periods to film movies, I do enjoy that they attempted to throw some reality into that previous scene. The water they have is is terrible. It's, it's brown and probably would just give you dysentery. Uh... There's buckshot in all the the meals, like you're pulling out scattershot from your rabbit that you're trying to eat. Just think of how shitty that world would be, not having like a grocery store to go to, or like a real one, or you know, ice cubes. Ice cubes are fantastic. I'm very glad I'm alive in a time where I can just go to my fridge and take a bunch out. There's um there's a lot less of uh, deconstruction of nostalgia for yield yield times in this movie because everything is much more subtle i think in this movie to let it be more fun um so a lot of that's downplayed but they still do put in stuff like that the water the buck shots um and just uh, the ice cubes are of course are course in there and just marty stepping in shits and everybody Even being like kind seat. of terrible <laughs> Even the scene uh, earlier in the movie where they're going through uh, Mad Dog's rap sheet and they mention he killed 12 men, not counting the Chinese or Native Americans. Yeah. And yet Doc still enjoys the place, which seems well, fantastic. As- A lot of us like things that we realize are not fantastic or problematic or whatever else. That's just human. Well, as we know from his line about the Japanese, Doc Brown is very, very racist. (laughs) I love the uh, story Gail tells about how this scene originally played out with Marty accidentally getting horseshit on Mad Dog's face. And somebody who is actually familiar with the time period having to put him aside and say... 
everyone was covered in shit back then. No one would care. <laughs> like, getting a spittoon thrown on you would be insulting. He probably already had shit on his face when he walked in. <laughs> There's another cool thing this movie does. We're not going to do the reuse cast thing so much. We're just going to fill this with character actors. Like an old western wood. It's amazing they got Harry Carey Jr. there. Like a guy who survived filming movies with John Wayne. Like that's a living artifact right there. We don't have ice water, you fool. Get out of here. Marty's not allowed to go into any bar in any time period except his own. <laughs> oh, I'm sure they're horrible to him in 1985. This is something I'm not sure that... why this guy actually asked what Marty wanted, considering he's like, all we have is whiskey. Just so he can say that line. <laughs> the fucking steam. There's something, by the way, I, uh, there's, no, uh, there's no good place to talk about this, but this is something I noticed uh, watching the film. And I don't think this was intentional at all, even though this idea is very Zemeckis and Gale, I think. Which is, if you ever noticed, everybody everybody in this town is horrible and bloodthirsty. Which, of course, is supposed to play into, you know, Marty's fucking uh, storyline. But the only people that aren't are the McFlies, who are immigrants who weren't born here, and all the <laughs> Americans are pieces of shit. <laughs> yeah, I never really picked up on that. But yeah, you got the McFlies, and you have uh, Brown himself being from an immigrant yeah. family. Yeah, they do mention the that. Bron Bronze. Which I've always taken to mean uh, that Doc is related to Werner von Braun, which has horrifying implications. <laughs> but you are right. That is... Like, this. The entire McFly family is such a, like, gentle and loving portrayal of an early, like, first-generation gen immigrant family. I think, I think about it, they do also put a button on, like, they draw a lot of attention to the fact that uh, Marty's great-grandfather is the first McFly born in America. Yeah, and it feels like a Zemeckis and Gale idea. I'm so... I feel like they would have talked about it somewhere, though, but I've never been able to find anything. But it it feels ingrained in the film. Hold up. It's probably my favorite joke in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> the make him dance as he transitions into moonwalking and everyone is just fascinated. Like, what is this? Some kind of spaceman walk. <laughs> greatest scene ever and also greatest performance ever. Tom Wilson. As, yeah, as long as we've got Mad Dog on the screen, let's talk about what a interesting turn this is for Tom Wilson to still obviously be playing a take on on Biff, but boy, it's it's he's almost unrecognizable with the mustache and hat and all of that, and he he's much more bloodthirsty and violent in this universe. Like he's just allowed to be off the chain compared to the previous versions of himself. Yeah, he's and he's not really doing a comedic performance at all. Like, if it weren't for the stupid shit that's coming out of his mouth, Mad Dog would be terrifying. He, he's yeah. just a real Western villain. Yeah, Tom Wilson would have actually done pretty well as like a genre heavy. If he, I mean, it's like he should be battling Lee Marvin that. or something. <laughs> <laughs> so, stopping to think here, we, we've had Wilson portray 
1950s Biff, 1980s Biff, alternate 1980s Biff, old man Biff from 2015, uh, Griff, and now Mad Dog. He's essentially played six different versions of the same character over three movies. And all are different. And don't, <laughs> and don't forget, he was super villain Biff in the Back to the Future ride. Still the greatest Biff ever. It's true. With his signature weapon, the wrench. Yes. I'm convinced that the only reason you see weird reek Biff again at the very end of this movie was because Galen Zemeckis wanted to make sure the audience appreciated the fact that this is a completely different performance from anything you've seen (laughs) from him in these movies. No, appreciate this. When, Look when at I was these a kid, two polar opposite performances. When I was a kid, I didn't know it was the same guy. I just thought it was a different actor. Yeah, well, it definitely same. seems like it. It's a different voice. The costume is, you know, very different from all the other versions of Biff we've seen. He holds himself differently. He plays it differently. Yeah, it's it's strange. Kind of makes you mad looking back. Like, why wasn't Tom Wilson a bigger deal? Yeah, like the guy had great chops. Well, like Cody just said, can you imagine him being a genre heavy? Could you imagine if he got into horror? Like seeing Wilson as a slasher in something? Uh, Wilson versus Sadler. I was going to say, I could see (laughs) him being uh, the sheriff that gets off after trying to hide the town's dirty secrets too long. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going toe-to-toe with, like, Tom Atkins or something. God, he's the only one who could defeat Atkins. (laughs) Especially if he had a rival mustache. Oh, baby. Also, I love this fucking Simpsons paint my chicken coop argument that's going on here. (laughs) Those corn muffins were lousy, Doc Brown. (laughs) Every Uh, back and forth with Mad Dog is fucking brilliant. I did some number research here. So $80 in 1885 would be worth approximately $2,071 in today's money. Which yeah, is, I shoot him in the back, too. Yeah, yeah that deserved to die. <laughs> pretty much. Uh, and that number is funny because it's pretty close to the amount of money that Biff owed for his car cleaning bill. If you were to convert that $300 bill, I think it was, into uh, $2019. And you so know those motherfuckers in, did. Uh, yeah, so like every right yeah every version of Biff being screwed over in the past is the same $2,000. <laughs> That's all it takes. That's the cutting point for the Griff family. It's it, $2,000? Not on my watch. <laughs> and God, we uh, just passed it. I One of my favorite moments in film history is Doc Brown getting a freaking superhero introduction with his science gun, saving Marty from a lunch mob. Like this, this is one of the things that makes this movie so special and so distinct from uh, the previous two is at this point, Doc and Marty are just action heroes in their own right. <laughs> like They've both become Ash at the end of their own character arcs. Going back to the idea of symmetry or rhyming storylines, the fun part for me of part three is the Doc and Marty roles are essentially flopped. In this one, Doc is all about finding love and fitting into this time. 
and Marty's really the one trying to help him out and trying to, to make things work, save his life. It's the other way around. Instead of Doc being the guardian angel, now he's the one who needs someone looking over his shoulder. It's a good and, way to flip their friendship and, and get a new dynamic going and still let these characters exploit their best character traits that we all love. Oh, yeah. And here's, I think, what the best part of that is, is how uh, them being flipped in this movie plays off the previous two and creates an interesting, complete story, especially how it ends up playing into what the final message of this is, which is, you know, of course, everyone, we've all made jokes, I think, about how, like, they somehow bullshitted together a final message for the Back to the Future trilogy out of nowhere. Um, but you actually pay attention. It, it, it sort of tracks. And that's the free will thing. In the, in the first film, Marty's right. Like, Marty's right and Doc's kind of wrong. So Doc reads, you know, puts Marty's letter back together and, you know, Marty changes the past. Uh, Doc changes the present because of Marty as well. In part two, Marty's wrong, Doc is right, and they have to fix everything based on what Doc is saying. And in the third film, Marty and Doc have now switched. But unlike the last two films, they've switched, but neither one is wrong. Yeah. It makes for a really interesting back and forth. It's also just great emotional continuity with Marty. Like, of course Marty would be by the book at this point. He nearly destroyed the world the last time he changed something. Yeah. To to interrupt this discussion, pay attention to the camera work going on right now. We had that slow take pulling around. Uh, oh, did I pick the wrong area? Wasn't this the spot where they have the train pull up in the background? Oh, uh, uh, now we got later. a few more minutes on that. Oh, fuck. Ah. Well, folks, coming up in a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> How are you enjoying that drink, Cody? Uh, uh, it's delicious. I mean, we can just talk so about all the camera work in this movie is fucking well, incredible. I, I was oh, confused yes. because it was very deliberate, and they were pulling in, and they were very carefully walking around the set. I was thinking, oh, they've got the open window in the background. It's the train shot. And just all the careful movement to make that work as a oneer is astonishing to me. The idea that you would have all the elements come into place so perfectly timed that you could hit all of your marks, all of your jokes, and then still have a train show up without any digital effects exactly when you needed to. And now it would all be CGI and not important. Right. Nowadays, you wouldn't think twice about it because you could just comp in a shot of the train moving. You wouldn't go to all the trouble of actually having the train hit a mark. And it's something that doesn't draw attention to yourself because, like, as we've just found out, like those type of shots are just built into the movie. They're everywhere. So that was like the weakest brainwave ever, Doc. I'm sorry. What if there was a hill? <laughs> <laughs> but like a steep hill. This is like a Tim's Hill in Wisconsin kind of hill. It is funny, they never tried the hill idea first before going to the train. <laughs> well, the fact the train looks like it comes out of Doc's head. Fucking brilliant. They do that nice little move where they step in and they, they zoom in on Doc a little bit to actually hide the train coming into place. 
but still have it framed perfectly so you can see the full train by the time it needs to make its joke. I don't know how many times they must have tried that shot, but I'm assuming it was several wasted days. <laughs> I'm sure. Also, I love this conductor so much. He's so Just good. The, the world he brings with him. Oh, fearless Don Fargo over there. <laughs> <laughs> what in tarnation? And there's so much storytelling just in the way he talks and the way he's <laughs> the way he chooses to phrase things. Like a hundred times in these commentaries, the mark of a truly great movie is when even the ancillary background characters stay with you. So I'm, I'm going to eventually stop complaining about Back to the Future 2, probably like when <laughs> five commentaries down the road. But one of the things I, I think really hurt that movie was that it had to go through 2015, alternate 1985 and 1955 all is essentially a setup in an hour and a half for this final chapter where the the bobs are way more invested this movie gets to spend all of its time in 1885 so instead of dashing from time period to time period always on the hunt for another MacGuffin, they're really able to open up the scenario and kind of explore one time period the drama's stronger, the relationships are stronger, and therefore my interest as an audience member is way higher. So I understand the importance of using two as a setup movie, and they tried doing different things, which you have to appreciate. If it was three movies that were all the exact same setup, that wouldn't work either. But I, I love the focus on basics that they have in part three. Yeah, that, that is kind of a, a thing with Back to the Future 2, like the stock criticism is what they should have done was just spend the entire movie in the future and just make it mirror the first one. But think about it. Do you actually want to see that? Yeah. They didn't have the kind of interest in the future to make it worthwhile. They could have maybe spent an entire film like an altered 1985 and gotten away with that. But even that was pretty dark jokey. It didn't totally work either. Uh, yeah. How much story Back can you mine from that? Yeah. Back to the Future Part 2 is one gigantic damned if you do, damned if you don't. But, I mean, its sacrifice gave us this movie. Yeah. It still blows my mind, though, that just the decision of when to set the story essentially makes or breaks the entire film. Like I said before, it's it's like the entire cast and crew is identical between all three movies, and yet there's a giant difference in quality between two and three. It just blows my mind. It really just comes down to, I think the Bobs were very invested in this storyline, and they kind of looked at two as something they needed to do to get it out of the way. And it's all just a question of what can you pull from this scenario and what can't you? So the the, the Bobs have said hundreds of times that there's never going to be a Back to the Future 4 or a reboot or remake while they're still alive. Like, they, they own those story rights. They're not going to let anyone play with it. It's a little bit of a shame in my mind, though, that we didn't actually end up with them just doing a series of Back to the Future movies. Like, just imagine, instead of doing two and three back-to-back, maybe they did two, and that was a success, and then they did three, and that was a success. And, and then they, like, decided, well, fuck it, part four is a dinosaur movie. Marty goes all the way back in time to dinosaur days. Just imagine all the weird scenarios they could have made full movies out of, different time periods and different areas to throw Marty into. 
the I, I 1980s jokes they could have crammed into like a Jack the Ripper storyline. I would have loved to have seen Marty wake up in a cave and see Leah Thompson in cave woman makeup, vaguely illuminated by a small fire. <laughs> Mom, you're so, you're so hairy. <laughs> ook, ook. Just Tom That's Wilson as a killer caveman. Or Tom Wilson as Jack the Ripper. I've got that idea in my head now. I think it would have been fun. Oh, <laughs> Jack the Ripper was a tannin? <laughs> Before he escaped to America. Oh, his ancestor Archibald Tannen. I mean, we do find out from the animated series that uh, one of his ancestors was Beauregard Tannen, the great Confederate general. So that entire <laughs> line is just evil all yep. throughout history. The Tannens are a fixed point in time and space. I mean, we do have Mary <laughs> Steenburgen from Time After Time here, so we're halfway to Jack the Ripper. <laughs> I forgot about that. Hey, we liked you so much in that other thing you did. What if you did that exactly the same? God, have you seen, like, Mary Steenburgen lately? She looks like about eight years have passed. <laughs> that was incredible on the special features. It's like, what the hell? <laughs> was this archival? She's got that Paul Rudd thing going on where she's just locked in her peak forever. As it should be. It's all because they stopped her from falling into that ravine. Mary Steenburgen, who made us believe Christopher Lloyd as Doc Brown is an attractive man. <laughs> she's just so attracted to his science. Oh, and his big puppy dog eyes. Like that, that's the, that's good, a great actress and great dialogue when they can just tell you Doc Brown is beautiful and that any woman would fall for him, and you believe it. We're three feet away. <laughs> They just want to break the timeline more. No, we have to. We have to use more future technology. Doc, we have did to you just have that laying around? To the Cowboys. <laughs> Doc it just looks like Doc was trying. <laughs> it just looks like he was going to rob the train. <laughs> well, <laughs> Marty messed things up. That's possible. He essentially, did I mean he threw the conductor out and just took the train over? Yeah, that was for a science experiment. Also, everything in Christopher Lloyd's performance in this scene makes me so happy, because he acts like he's actually playing trains. I know, <laughs> he's so whimsical. Again, this is such, such an innocent fucking movie. I think that's why I always preferred the first one as a kid, but this was always the one I had the most fun watching. Oh, yeah. Just imagine, Marty, like, sat around in Doc's garage for, I'm gonna say... Eight hours while Doc made little tiny train tracks just so he could demonstrate this visually for Marty. With that Doc, you're going to die in like three days. And Hold he up, wasted Marty. a good work day, I'm going to say. That's my estimate here, to make this happen. And that's, that's being pretty generous. Because look, he made a working electric train. There's tracks. He had to cut all those little rail ties. That is still not to goddamn scale. <laughs> not even close. Yet. That's why anytime anybody says, Rick and Morty is such a ridiculous exaggeration of Back to the Future. <laughs> no. No, it's not. It's just Back to the Future. You're just seeing what's happening off screen. 
again, go back to that first scene and Back to the Future Part 2. I'm sorry, I had to knock her out. I just, I just, I panicked. <laughs> I like how they have to cover the DeLorean. Like, she's going to walk in and be like, hey, is that a time machine? Like, this man of science would just happen to have some weird science sitting around. The giant refrigerator next to it is okay. We can't have her see the DeLorean, though. <laughs> well, I think also, it's easier just... to explain not makes ice cubes. What's that? It's where I hide my cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, it has to be time appropriate. That's where he hides his opium. Of course, I'm sorry. Which I'm sure Brown got into in those six months. Hold on, I have to do some science diving. Google, please tell me who invented cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> and we've officially hit this point. Please tell me it's Herschel P. Cocaine. <laughs> uh, okay, so I just searched who invented cocaine. Hmm. History Channel, topics, crime, cocaine, history. Yeah, all right. What do we got, History Channel? Eddie Van Halen. Hey, that's not right. <laughs> uh, for thousands of years, indigenous people in the Amazon rainforest and Andes Mountains have chewed cocoa leaves to get an energetic high. European scientists first isolated cocaine from cocoa leaves in the 1850s. Once lauded as a medical wonder drug, experts now recognize cocaine as one of the most addictive substances on the earth. Wait, 1850s. So the second that was created, it went directly up Sir Conan Arthur Doyle's nose. <laughs> That's like perfect timing there. I'm mad because this was apparently a thing that was figured out in the 1850s, and there's not an official inventor of cocaine. Unsung hero. The man responsible for the 80s, which gave us the Back to the Future. All right, here we oh, go. There, German chemist... Albert Niemann isolated cocaine from cocoa leaves in 1860. He knows that the powdery white substance made his tongue feel numb. Not bad. Of course it was German. Uh, around the same time, French chemist Angelo Mariana concocted a tonic made from Bordeaux wine and cocoa leaves. He called it Vin Mariani after himself. Advertisements claimed the popular drink could restore health and vitality. So the French immediately jumped into making cocaine into an energy drink. <laughs> and we still haven't learned. All right, so I'm going to give cocaine credit to Albert Neiman. Also, hey, Dean Cundy being beautiful. <laughs> I love how when Dean Cundy shoots Dean Cundy, he looks like a goddamn Greek god. <laughs> <laughs> the old ZZ Tops. This is something I didn't. It's never really occurred to me until earlier today when I was thinking about it. What a fucking 180 is it? The first two movies have an official song by Huey Lewis in the news. The third movie went for ZZ Top. So weird that they didn't just get Huey back for one more movie. I want to mention also my favorite guns in movies are the ones from Back to the Future. They always sound like a goddamn howitzer cannon is being fired. Zemeckis just makes guns in these films seem like if you were to get like winged by one, your arm would fly off. 
And there's uh, there's something about the way um, Zemeckis films guns, where they I've only ever seen guns look like fucking heavy machinery in this movie. Like every barrel looks gigantic. I don't know if it's just because like Michael J. Fox holding one, but even when like Mad Dog's holding one, he's fucking gi- yeah, giant. It looks like he's holding like this cannon. Oh, Strickland's gun is a fucking lightsaber. <laughs> like it's fucking awesome. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna start a history lesson a little early here because I have a lot to say. Uh, so everyone, hold on to your butts. We're gonna be learning about flying discs right now. Oh so boy! In in oh. in the film, in just a second here, you're gonna get to see Marty pick up a frisbee python that he later tosses to stop Mad Dog from killing Doc. And the joke here is that Marty invented the modern-day Frisbee disc. In reality, that's not that far off. The Frisbee Pie Company was founded in 1871, and as legend has it, children would throw their pie tins around while yelling Frisbee, kind of like four in golf, to just let other people know that there was a flying plate on the way. Uh, There's also an alternate theory on Wikipedia that the uh, Frisbee Pie Company sold a large volume of pies uh, to uh, a college, and all the the students at Yale University took the pie tins and then made a game out of throwing them around, and they were the ones who popularized Frisbee th- flying discs. Okay, I'm I put my stock in the story that does not involve Yale. <laughs> Did they get enough credit? Anyways, in 1937, Walter Morrison and his wife Lucille were tossing a popcorn can lid. Uh, They were offered 25 cents for the lid, and they realized there was a market to sell the disc because they could get like a pie tin for five cents and sell for a quarter. Uh, So they sold flying discs until World War II when Walter joined the Air Force and became a prisoner of war. When he eventually returned to America, he designed an improved disc named the Whirlaway and started selling the discs made out uh, plastic in 1948. They were then renamed the Flying Saucer to cash in on the UFO craze. Uh, Walter then sold the rights to Whammo on January 23rd, 1957, and was given a patent on the design the next year. Whammo rebranded the discs uh, and then called them Frisbees after learning about the the story of people throwing Frisbee pythons back and forth. Uh, Edward Hard- Hedrick, uh, Whammo's general manager and vice president of marketing, had the discs then redesigned to increase the rim thickness and mass to make the discs more accurate. Uh, once this design went into production in 1964, Whammo was able to market the Frisbee as a new sport and sales skyrocketed. Everybody wanted flying discs. You had to get a Frisbee. So there you go. That's, in a nutshell, the his- history of Frisbees. The movie wasn't that far off. Yeah, people were hard up for entertainment before the Super Nintendo. <laughs> also, the shit out of hoop and stick. Also, that's just Strickland from 1955, right? Like he's just, he was just that fucking old. I he had like hair think... in this version, so it just finally fell out. Well, I like to think at some point he was cursed by a witch. Bald. <laughs> to live eternal. <laughs> I mean, we do know that uh, little Strickland watched his father brutally murdered in front of him by Mad Dog in a deleted scene. So, yeah, I'd hate some slackers, too. 
I'm fascinated that scene that... was specifically deleted because it made test audiences want Marty to kill Mad Dog. And that was the opposite effect line. they wanted. That would have been interesting yeah. if it ends with an actual murder and then there's just no Biff in the future scenes and they just let you put those together. Yeah, I, I find myself kind of agreeing, especially when you watch that scene and... There's, like, no joke to it. That's just a really dark, horrible scene. Yeah. Do you think they picked ZZ Top, actually, just because they had the beard, so it made him seem more Old Westy? I assume. Thank God we don't have to do any makeup. That little gun. Uh, that's something I, do, I think uh, like contributes to how whimsical this movie is. Like, even Buford, like, being a horrible Old West villain, he... He ends up coming across as kind of a rascally Disney Western villain. Yeah. Keeps a little the movie mustache fun. twirly. Although this part is fairly dark compared to most of the other things, like him talking about a man bleeding to death from the inside because of a Derringer bullet lodged in his lungs. <laughs> like, <laughs> Most realistic real. thing in this movie. Yeah, fairly grim compared to most of the other fun things here. The term <laughs> Philly really needs to come back. The way Mad Dog dances. Ooh, there's a snake in my boot. <laughs> also, bullshit. I cannot believe they didn't get Zane to play one of these guys. That I know, ye weird. old Zane. He already had the cowboy hat. <laughs> and the bad thing is, if Zane was part of the gang, we could continue to make Demon Knight jokes. Like, no, that's just that dude. <laughs> <laughs> like we need excuses. I've already referenced Satan. That is a good line. <laughs> go, Python, go! <laughs> ridiculous Doc, uh, I've been obsessed since childhood with specifically the stinger from the end of part two with the whimsical Sylvestri theme playing and Doc getting his hat shot off <laughs> got another little bit of history here uh, no. Marty used the term jerk and Mad Dog looks bewildered before assuming well it's gotta be an insult I just don't know what it means uh, so I did a little bit of digging, and according to uh, etymologyonline.com, jerk, meaning a tedious and ineffectual person, didn't really come around until uh, 1935, apparently. Yeah. It was an American English carnival slang of uncertain origin, uh, possibly coming from jerkwater, which was a petty, <laughs> inferior, insignificant. Wait, wait, wait. So technically jerk has always been shirt for jerkwad? Close. Jerk water, specifically. Uh, oh, a tea. Yes. A lot of people think it came from... Uh, it might have possibly been influenced by the verbal phrase, jerk off, to masturbate. Uh, some people thought it came from the song Big Rock Candy Mountain. Because there's the line, where they hung the Turk that invented work. Uh, most people hear that line is where they hung the jerk that invented work. They were actually referring to Turkish people, and that song's surprisingly more racist now than I ever realized. <laughs> yeah, way to shit on that, Cody. However, 
there was this term soda jerk from 1883, which was the pulling motion required to work the taps. You had to jerk the taps. So essentially, Marty, when he calls him a jerk, Mad Dog is confused because he's telling him, like, hey, you're a guy who pulls on stuff. So if you ever again, confuse your old-timey rival, yeah, just, just say, like, new-timey slang and make-up words just to really throw them off their game. <laughs> Hear that, time travelers? <sighs> we know you're listening. Listen Still in for tips. Just start calling people jerkwaters, and we'll be confused as hell. Oh yeah, and going back to like actors who really get to uh, spread their wings in this particular movie. I'm I love seeing James Tolkien get to be a version of Strickland who's actually good at what he does and reacts appropriately to situations and just seems like a good dude. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. He needed to be dropped into the old west. Uh Biff should never be in the past because the the less social mores out there the worse he is. Like, he needs to be strictly controlled by society. That's something... I, I'm very curious if this was intentional on their part or not, because I've never heard them talk about it. Their portrayal of Buford is way more historically accurate than most Old West villains. Like, people like v Billy the Kid were biffs. Like, they were just douchebags that annoyed everyone in town. And occasionally shot people in the back because they were all cowards. <laughs> we're now being sued by the descendants of Billy the Kid. <laughs> well, this uh, this entire series has been we've talked about has been great at going to pop culture nostalgia and then tearing it te like tearing the glisten from it to show what things were actually like. And there's a, there is definitely a lot of that here, and particularly with Buford. And it, and it begins the second you see him where he just says, no, I don't like being called Mad Dog. I will fucking kill you if you call me that again. Yeah, it does not line up quite with the mythology. Which, again, was true of, like, Old West villains and, like, gangsters in the 20s. Like, if you called Babyface Nelson Babyface, he would shoot you in the fucking head. Yeah. Now, I've seen, oh, brother, where art thou? He would just murder some cows. <laughs> <laughs> So we, we, we just jumped past Marty's ancestor giving him some words of wisdom about, you know, just, just his, his fatal flaw. Which I like, because they, they set that up in part two, but they can't conclude it because they have a third movie to worry about. The third movie really gets to take that problem Marty has and gets to finish it off. But before that, they go back and they strengthen it up for people that might have forgotten the stuff that was mentioned in two. So he gets to hear some family lore about, you know, one of his other ancestors being murdered, stabbed in the gut with a bowie knife. I think it works much better here where he gets life lessons from essentially different versions of himself rather than some of the weird stuff where he sees like his progeny just screwing up in the future, a potential future that they've essentially undone. Yeah. Once again, there's a little impactful. bit lost because it's not Glover playing him. So you get that, yeah. you know, play around yeah. with George McFly stuff, but it, I think it's also I, I like how because they put in the Old West setting, they can have Marty take that id 
to its furthest points, where if you actually stop and think, you realize, oh no, Marty's about to murder somebody. <laughs> In a place where it's, it's okay, kind of socially it's acceptable. Like, it's... it's I, I never really appreciated that. Like, oh, this is actually kind of fucking insane. Because <laughs> <laughs> he called him a chicken! <sighs> fucking Spielberg shot here. <laughs> We gotta call back me. to all the clocks from the first film. Correct me if I'm wrong, but this is all an extended visual metaphor for old people fucking, correct? Oh, yes. it's gotta be. Rock those eggs. <laughs> I'm more concerned, like, Doc's way of hitting on people is just like, hey, I never know women like to read sci-fi. Not, not the best look, Doc. I, I guess it worked out for you, but that could have been played better. <sighs> he's, he's from another time, Cody. He didn't know about Reddit. He also apparently just wholesale stole Jules Verne's lines. He got called on it. <laughs> you know, something I I never really appreciated about this movie, like this scene in particular, because it's always like his ass is always cropped out in the TV <laughs> versions, like. Movies were way <laughs> more egalitarian about cheesecake yeah. I, I was back in this era. Super confused when I watched this on DVD, and I'm all like, "Why am I seeing so much ass crack? Where did they sneak that in?" There's a lot of ass when crack. Well, you think about it, like we're supposed to be like way more progressive about that kind of stuff now. But if this were shot today, I'd be like, "Oh, look, it's Seth Rogen's ass." Uh uh-uh. uh like, but in the 90s, it was like, no, let's get the teenage girls in the audience something to squeal about. And they my, did. My favorite story about how nudity is treated in media is from Hannibal. In that show, there's one episode where the killer flays, like, a, a couple and poses them so they, they look like they're kneeling before a bed with their backs peeled off and set up like angel wings. And the studio was okay with this very graphic violence. Like, they actually had static shots of these people with their backs flayed wide open you could see their ribs and blood and organs the studio was fine with that but the people were naked and you could see their ass cracks and the studio couldn't (laughs) couldn't live with that so they had to go back in and digitally add more blood to the actor's ass cracks to essentially remove the ass crack they were they were okay with the idea of just caking these people with so much gore you couldn't tell if they had butt cheeks I love hysteria over butt nudity specifically. That thing everyone on the face of the earth has. I know I don't want my son knowing what a butt looks like. <laughs> the forbidden part. I did a little bit of research uh, whenever I was watching this on this mortician. Because I've always been fascinated by this performance. <laughs> and I knew a lot of the townspeople were crew members. So I was curious, like, is this a makeup guy or something? And uh, no, he is an actor who's, like, done a lot of background stuff in movies over the years. But he did have one crew credit, which is he was the makeup artist on the original Frankenweenie short. (laughs) This dude who is a walking Tim Burton (laughs) character, specifically a Tim Burton stop-motion character. Was on Tim Burton's first thing. That that amazes me. It's a small Hollywood after all. 
God damn it, Doc, we've already talked about this. When lives are on the line, you can talk about the future. <sighs> so Doc literally with a feather in his cap. <laughs> so in Back to the Future 1, they introduced the concept and the movie logic behind, oh, there's going to be a photo that has disappearing stuff on it to act as a warning gauge for how much you've screwed up. And we get that carried over here where now... <laughs> They have the tombstone they can use. Oh, whose name on it is on it now? Is there anything on the tombstone? It's I, I like how they double down on what's an effective tool, although a very silly one. Like, <laughs> there's no denying that it's a very dumb idea that you know all these pictures and stuff would slowly fade out over time <laughs> as you screwed up more and more of the past instead of just being an off-on kind of situation. But it, it's so effective at what it does, you kind of just shrug your shoulders and move on. I love how it does subtly send the message to the audience, like, okay, you're used to Marty having to save the day and Marty having to learn a lesson or impart a lesson to somebody else. This is very much a story about both of these guys and both of their asses are on the line. And depending on how this goes, one or the other or both might not make it out alive. Yeah. It's such a great raising of stakes. Man, Jennifer's going to be so confused when Marty is just dead in the past forever. <laughs> in that gun safe. <laughs> and they just crack it open in 1985. Oh, that's where he went. Oh, the smell. God, the power of love is a funky-ass thing. <laughs> that's where Huey Lewis went. He's still in the gun safe. <laughs> no! I love how the DeLorean being put on the train track is treated like the most epic thing in the world. It gets a sting. Nothing to see here, folks. Just setting up the third act. <laughs> Don't mind me. I like how Zemeckis does go out of his way to point out, no, this isn't bullshit movie logic. You can totally drive a car on a train track. People do it all the time. <laughs> I mean, it's not a bad idea, Doc. You could at least bring it up to her. Although they've known each other for like two days, it'd be kind of weird to be like, hey, I just met you and this is crazy, but do you want to move uh, 100 years into the future with me? Maybe. Where the Libyans are hunting me? <laughs> yes. Where <laughs> I have stolen plutonium. I mean, he has a time machine. If he doesn't just destroy the DeLorean right away, they could just go back if it doesn't work out. I'm sorry, now I'm just imagining, like, the plot of the first Iron Man movie, but it's Doc Brown using the DeLorean to defeat Libyan terrorists. <laughs> <laughs> it's true superpower. Time travel. The drama. God, just, just imagine you had a breakup, and instead of having to be like, oh, now I gotta go find my own apartment because we signed a lease together, you have to also go, great, now I have to somehow get 100 years into the past. Oh, it's like somebody who moves for a relationship, but you're in a different point in time and space. <laughs> so this is a pleasant-ass cabin. Oh, yeah, very cozy. Yes. One Not rich bad for a farm. 
Yeah, I was about to say, this school teacher is apparently loaded. Slave money. She did ah, say, uh, when Buford's propositioning her, she's like, I'm worth more than the $80, which in our money, again, is over $2,000. She was saying if she was a prostitute, she'd be worth more than $2,000 a trick. Jesus, she could own yeah. this town. I love Mary Steam Virgin making it very clear that she has a million dollar pussy. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just say how happy I am that I have finally had the opportunity to say million dollar pussy on this podcast? In regards to Mary Steam Virgin. <laughs> there's just there's balloons falling in Jamie's house right now. She's just <laughs> yeah. in her apartment. It worked. The show's done. I'm free now. I mean, she is the woman who won the heart of Doc Brown, the man who had room in his heart for nothing but science and that dog. And cowboy shirts. Speaking of, uh, speaking of Steam Virgin and Clara, an impressive thing uh, this movie does that you don't see end trilogy movies do a lot is kind of introduce... And a whole new supporting cast. Like, Clara, we've never seen before, but through both performance and writing, and it was written for Steam Virgin, so it's very symbiotic, is your is they were able to create a character who, who does not feel like she's invading the story of Back to the Future. Like, who the fuck is this new character we're supposed to be invested in at the very end of the You're story? You're taking all the precious Jennifer time. <laughs> Uh, you are right. Like, as much as I'll always gripe about the Jennifer stuff in 2, like, this third movie does a spectacular job of introducing a female character who not only engages the audience's interest, but who is, like, at the very end, allowed to go along for the ride, which I really love. Yeah. Like, she gets an action scene. <laughs> How many movies have a, a sci-fi action scene with Mary Steenburgen? Or she flies away on, on a hoverboard. Not enough. Some of Christopher Lloyd's finest moments. <laughs> Since he rested his arm on that ass and clue. <laughs> it's amazing that uh, this performance is so different from what you've seen in his other comedic roles that there was a moment where I was like, oh yeah, Christopher Lloyd was, was in Clue. It was like, that's total po polar opposite performances. So I was really delighted to discover the entire reason this one-shot instant drunkenness joke exists is because by the time this movie was being filmed... Doc Brown was such a p pop culture touchstone. Galen Zemeckis knew it would upset people to see him drunk. <laughs> it's like, no, in five years, Doc Brown was all was already everything that was good and pure in the universe. I think of him as like a kind of a modern day hipster. He just wants to look cool by holding whiskey, not to actually imbibe. <laughs> it's all for the just the looks. Also, I love this old-timey man of technology showing off his wares to Doc Brown. <laughs> with the future in his hands. Once again, just coming in from a different movie. 
every goddamn supporting character. So one one facet of Back to the Future we've neglected to mention until now uh, is the fact that Kathleen Kennedy uh, was a producer on this trilogy, and I think everyone these days recognizes her name now. Yeah. But they might not realize she's more than just the head of Star Wars. Like folks, folks don't realize all the things she's been a part of. She co-founded Amblin Entertainment with Spielberg in 1981. Uh, I mean, Amblin essentially is responsible for all of the 80s and probably her childhoods. Uh, if you look on IMDb, she has 96 producer credits on different TV and film Damn. projects, and as much credit as we give Steven Spielberg for molding pop culture, you got to give her a, a large portion of that too. She's been with Spielberg on all of his projects since he filmed 1941 in 1979. They've been working together to make projects since then. So she's done like 60 films, mostly as executive producer. Uh, she's garnered eight Academy Award nominations and over $11 billion worldwide with her movies including three of the highest-grossing films in motion picture history. Like, she, she's second only to Spielberg in domestic box office receipts, with over $7 billion as of uh, January 2018 associated to projects she's produced. That's insane! She's had her hand in pretty much every big successful blockbuster for decades. That's what was always so hilarious about the man-baby outrage over Kathleen Kennedy, where it's like, you realize you wouldn't have literally half of the shit you enjoy <laughs> if it were not for Kathleen Kennedy. You ungrateful children. I was amazed by the people that acted like she just appeared and they no, know, gave her Star Wars. That's what's so funny, <laughs> is like, I'm acting like, uh, who this person just came out of nowhere and did all this. Uh, she's just gonna fail and Hollywood will laugh her off like, motherfucker, Kathleen Kennedy is Hollywood. She's been Hollywood Gosh. for like 30 <laughs> fucking years. She's the only reason you the ha- greatest producer to ever live. The only reason you haven't heard of her is because she's not a jackass like somebody like Joel Silver. Like She doesn't embarrass herself constantly or make everything about her. So I love this dress so much. This is her ye old Mr. Glass get up. I love I, finding I out special that, features. No, yeah, I think Island like you're going to tell the same pissed. story. Because <laughs> the dress would like change color as the day went on. Just bleached out by the sun. Oh, the joy. Yeah. Yes. Make some wake up juice. That bartender has been waiting 20 years to say that. To make this poison. For some reason, he has I not didn't made make... wake up juice since the war. <laughs> For some reason, I didn't make wake up juice the commentary official drink. Uh, I, I looked into so what bad. it's made up of, and according to the movie novelization, it's Tabasco sauce, cayenne pepper, chili peppers, mustard seed, vinegar, and onions, all blended <laughs> together. Mm. I like I'm, that some poor novelization writer had to figure that shit out. I'm pretty sure this would murder you if you actually had some. It's um, it's just poison. <laughs> What I think is cutting the credits right here. (laughs) Maybe use that as like a weird marinade or something, but I wouldn't trust it straight up. I would fucking love that on some fried chicken. What what amuses me? This is the first time I've ever heard the ingredients to the wake up juice, and I've always, um, whenever I like have a sore throat, I make something. I just jokingly call wake up juice an ode (laughs) to this. 
and it's the it same involves, thing. Or just chugging Tabasco. It involves some of those ingredients, yeah. And I never knew that, <laughs> so I've named it it's appropriately. Uh, I will say, in the movie, when they're putting the ingredients out on the bar counter, I think there's only five ingredients, and the novelization included six. So there may be a difference between movie canon wake up juice and the <laughs> book version. Most likely. Well, scripts also scripts always change on the fly, you know, between you know, writing and shooting. So who knows what they had to improvise? <laughs> also, I've been I mean to say this like half the movie. I love so much the brilliant, subtle decision to have literally a ticking clock in the background <laughs> of half of the scenes in this movie, just to remind everyone that they're on a time frame. Because how else do you tell what time it is in the Old West? Shadows. As, as we see right here. <laughs> Incidentally, I watched Mary Poppins Returns again today. Big portion of that revolves around uh, revolves around Big Ben being on the wrong time. Wow, it's all about clocks and movies, folks. If you're making a period piece, you got to have a big ass clock. <laughs> That's the best thing about the old world. So I, I also really enjoy this little meta joke that Marty learns his lesson, and as soon as he declares it, Doc shoots up and is sober. I think I hear a character arc coming to completion. <laughs> By the way, it's, folks at home. It's done so obviously, though, that it just works perfectly. Like, you know they're they're kind of taking the piss out of things, but it just it's so obvious you can't be mad. <laughs> oh, wait, folks at home, if you ever have a sore throat, what you do is take a bunch of black pepper, a bunch of cayenne, ginger, ground ginger. You sound like my grandma. I know. A little bit of honey. And then um, about eight ounces of apple cider vinegar. Um, add a little hot water to that. Actually, yeah, do about five ounces of uh, apple cider vinegar and the rest make up with hot water. And stir it around really good. Gulp it as fast as you can because it's disgusting. But you'll be good to go for the rest of the day. And then good. take the rest of that apple cider vinegar. Uh, pour maybe a fourth cup into like a microwave safe container put in your microwave and then heat that for about five minutes it's going to smell like death your nose is going to burn but you can wipe your microwave out and it'll be clean as new oh i I love that trick that's why people come to our commentaries to hear our cleaning tips also please don't look at my apartment it's disgusting (laughs) and just do all those steps and you have a nice full day of driving ahead of you (laughs) a clean throat and a clean microwave. You can actually combine those. If you step into the microwave while drinking the apple cider vinegar, <laughs> your insides will be pure. I think that would just turn you into Dr. Manhattan. <laughs> but um, going back to what you were saying earlier, like I love the symmetry here. <laughs> he is an and then asshole. Michael J. Fox nodded at, in agreement at Michael J. Fox. Uh, I love that the first movie censors so much about George McFly stepping up and kind of becoming who he was meant to be through an act of violence, like a small act of violence, but an act of violence nonetheless. And the way it's mirrored in this movie is Marty going, you know what, I actually don't have to punch Biff. I can just walk away until well, he does end up his hand is forced. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, he doesn't like have to you... murder Biff. Yeah, I, I like the weird have your cake and eat it, too. They were like, yeah, if you can, avoid violence, but every now and then somebody needs to get punched in the face. Yeah, he gets That's to what... play it on his own terms. He's not forced exactly. into it by other yeah. people and their perception of him. That's it's not a thing... pride. That's a great thing about that symmetry I was talking about between the first one, between the first film and this. It's the same action, it's filmed the same way, but it's a completely different purpose. Yeah, there's a difference between looking for a fight and dealing with a fight when it comes to you. That's what I love about Marty's, like, his realization, like, his finish to it is also going, he's an asshole. Like, it's the ultimate, <laughs> he's an asshole, who fucking cares? You do not have to debate Ben Shapiro. And it's in a world where essentially everyone has the Marty chip on their shoulder, so that's what's, what's so perfect about it. Also, it. There's a nice little bit in here, too, where Marty mentions, I thought we could sell this like men, which is kind of a, a tip to the head of the, like, this evolving idea of masculinity in general. I mean, in the world of 1885, I imagine settling things like men involved doing it the mad dog way you just shoot the other guy you know might proves right whereas in marty's mind uh, someone who's living in the 1980s you don't really have to do that you have a choice you don't have to prove your manliness by beating the shit out of other people you know he offers to just do this through conversation and when forced to he stands up for himself probably not a point the bobs were trying to make but it's one i took away from it <sighs> Can we all just take a moment to appreciate Michael J. Fox in 1990 getting to do a fistful of dollars standoff? <laughs> <laughs> Dead serious. <laughs> I would for sure die in a shootout like this because I get very confused as to how the countdown works. Like, is it one, two, three draw, or is it one, two, and then on three we draw, or is there a clock we have to worry about? How many chimes? There, there'd be a thousand things I'd get nervous about, and I would probably end up shooting my own foot if I didn't get pasted in the face first. Oh, you'd get Aaron Bird so hard. <laughs> that is one funny thing about westerns that you never really think about until somebody points it out, like, Wait, why do they observe formal dueling rules? <laughs> right. <laughs> like they're two Victorian dandies. <laughs> so no, they, they just wait until Marty fell asleep and then blow his head off with a shotgun. <laughs> right, like with the Derringer. So on the blue, uh, Robert Zemeckis refers to Marty as the master of ceremonies during the trilogy, which I thought was a fascinating way to look about it. Uh, so in part one, it's really about Marty's father coming into his own. It's it's George McFly's story. Then in part two, it's it's Marty's story. Like it's different versions of him in his past and his future, getting it all to work out right and trying to protect his mom. Part three, it's all Doc's relationship, but Marty in part three is the one that gets to resolve all the action here. He saves Doc multiple times. He takes care of Mad Dog. He's the one driving the DeLorean. Like, really, Marty's the one driving the plot, but it's Doc's story. I, I love how good 
Wilson is at this point in doing the Biff <laughs> reaction punch. <laughs> like, that man can spin on a goddamn dime. I just enjoy Sylvester kind of Mickey Mousing the score there to go along with the punches. You get those nice <laughs> bits of Back to the Future theme with each punch, and then Biff comes back, and the music quiets down, and then jumps right into another stinger as he gets punched. After not really hearing the Back to the Future theme all that much oh, in this yeah. movie, which is such a great like build-up to it just blaring in that last scene. It's effective use. Hey, you're not Strickland. <laughs> Strickland's at home. He's got cholera. Why didn't they do anything sooner? They were waiting for somebody to punch him. (laughs) I want a photograph framed in my house that says, Here lies Clint Eastwood. (laughs) (laughs) Shot in the back over a matter of $80. That's not his actual tombstone. Someone fucked up somewhere. (laughs) Hey, you shouldn't be handling this. (laughs) I love Seamus so much. (laughs) Were there deleted scenes talking about that hat? Like, they mentioned in passing once or twice, but they make it seem like that was a big connection between those two. Was there, like, a bunch of deleted footage talking about their shared love and hate of hats? I I think it's just the joke of Marty looks shitty in a hat. (laughs) And Seamus is really obsessed with hats. It's weird, there's only, like, really one true deleted scene in this movie, and it's just Strickland getting murdered. Uh. This is a tight fucking screenplay. What happens when it's written as the third act of a movie? There's no fat. <laughs> exactly. I, I do enjoy how all the elements really come to play together for this climax. They have to hijack the train. They have to get to the DeLorean, get the DeLorean up to speed. Doc has to save Clara. All of this is going on at the same time, and they know they're on a, a time limit because if they wait too long, the DeLorean won't get up to speed and will fall off the bridge and kill them. It's very focused, which I love. Thinking about it, I mean, the climax of Back to the Future 1 is really spread out. There's the, the punch, then there's the song at the, the, the dance. Marty has to get the car up to speed to get back to his own time. It's like there's three or four separate big ending events. And in, in part two, you get tired because it's a lot of the same event, Cat and, Ma- or Cat, Cat and Mouse, over and over. But three, they finally nailed it. All of the elements are coming together at one time in one big Kind of complex problem. Which, hey, you might as well end it on the best note instead of like getting it right the first time and then fucking up the next two times. It, it is amazing to look at this as one giant like screenwriting problem. Like, okay, after two movies with increasingly escalating stakes, how do we end this on a high note? Oh, a goddamn motherfucking train robbery. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoy I Marty and goddamn Doc franchise. working together. Most of the time it feels like Doc is off doing his own thing while Marty has to go stop Biff. This time, Biff's already been dealt with, and they just get to work together, albeit on separate parts of the train, for one shared goal. It's nice. It's teamwork. And considering the whole movie series is built off the chemistry between these two actors... 
Okay, this is probably the second best joke in the movie. (laughs) (laughs) This is why Doc can't remain in the past. He just destroyed an entire train. He does not have the money to replace a train. He can't even pay for a new horse hoof. God, if that were Fearless Dan Fargo they were holding up, they would be fucking dead. He would have thrown them into the furnace. That man does not (laughs) give a shit about anything. He once got that thing up to 66 miles. (laughs) More thing I want to say about Alan Silvestri here. We got that nice train-chugging sound effect, which eventually becomes the basis for the new riff on the Back to the Future theme that Silvestri employs during this action scene. It plays together really well, because, I mean, you get that chugging noise that really makes it seem like a heavy percussion that's driving you. Plus, you get the Back to the Future theme we all love, it's catchy, and a tinge of old-timiness to it to make it fit in with this version of the film. It all blends so nicely. Now, I always said before, the sound design in this entire franchise is a work of art. Yeah, you can start to hear building now. There's kind of a, a marching sound in the back. It's, it's very nice that Silvestri didn't just use the same theme we loved three different times and called it a day. There's, there's a lot of variation going on with the different versions of the theme. Hey, Silvestri is a dude who gets off his ass and writes a slightly different version of the Avengers theme for every one of those kinds yeah. of movies. It is not lazy. I, I've always loved the uh, little touch of Doc Brown having his own science logs that he's coupled together with his know-how just to make life in the Old West a little bit easier. <laughs> Which, like, if you, like, follow in a chemical engineer on social media, those people are walking life hacks. <laughs> I like the structure of the ending, too, because it's not just, hey, we have to get to 88 miles per hour. It's, we have to survive getting 88 miles per hour. We're going really fast, which is our goal. But at the same time, going that fast with people clinging to trains and cars is a good way for somebody to fall off and just be murdered. It's great. There's, it's a blessing and a curse. Their goal is also very bad for them. <laughs> and Doc finally gets to uh, put his expert dangling skills to use. <laughs> I love, They were very much in love with the concept of the hoverboard, and they got a lot of use out of it. So, it was such a good idea to bring that back for the third movie. This is the juxtaposition fun. of all that's going on. <laughs> I enjoy that Doc had no problem with Marty keeping the hoverboard. Like, fuck it, bring that into the past. Play around, it's cool. It'll destroy the world one day. <laughs> Zoom! God, I don't... Would this be the only, like, big action scene Mary Steenburgen's had in her career? I can't really think of any others. It's probably, like, one of the two times that Chris Lloyd has gotten kissed in a film, too. I believe so. (laughs) The other one I'm thinking of is Adam's Family, so... 
<laughs> I'm sorry, Adam's Family Values. And he I assume the end of Piranha Double D. <laughs> he is married in that movie, but I don't think him and his wife ever kiss. I might be making I that up. I can't actually remember now. I'm doubting <laughs> myself. Uh, if we have any Piranha 3 Double D fans in the audience, could you please contact us on Twitter and tell me if I've gotten the plot to <laughs> Piranha 3 Double D incorrect? <laughs> See, I never want to see that movie because I've always imagined, because of the tone of the first movie, there's a scene with Lloyd flanked on either side by women with giant fake boobs. Just uh, full-on pimp Lloyd. I want to I think that he got to do that once. He pretty much gets like a cameo in the second. Like he gets one scene where he gets to talk to the main characters and explain the piranhas. It's, it's a bummer. There's better ways to use Lloyd. Um, that man has Professor Plum inside of him. <laughs> He's got range, damn it. Man, the Bobs love their, like, doomsday timers. <laughs> like, all throughout the series, there's different ways to find out, like, oh, no, we're almost out of time. Here, there's the dual mileage gauge. You know, oh, we're getting closer to 88, the magic number. But there's also the steam gauge, like the temp gauge rising and rising and rising. You know, it's heading to a danger area. Plus the clocks we saw earlier counting the time down, the photograph. They really load these movies with different symbols to, to let you know, like, oh, no, there's a rush here. There's there's pressure. It's building. I think that's what makes all the technology in this movie so entrancing to a small child. Because it's just dial porn. <laughs> Just switches and levers and timers and things bleaking. Well, as a kid, you can pick that up pretty easy, too. It's really simple but strong visual language. Hey, there's a clock counting down. Uh-oh, I know what they have to do. they got to do something before that clock hits zero. It's like, you can understand it, even if you don't follow attention or pay attention to the plot. It is funny to think as complicated as the plots to these movies are in some places, we all understood them perfectly when we were, like, six. There's a lot, right? Well, there's some yeah, don't basic maybe bring up the Grant Morrison really thing again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if they just say we have to hit 88 miles per hour like 10 times in a movie, everyone's going to be able to pick it up. You might think it's a little silly that they keep saying it, but it stresses the point, and everyone understands it. And let's face it, I'm from the South, so the second I saw the, the first one, I was like, oh, he wants to sleep with his mom, okay. <laughs> <laughs> everyone gets it. Now, this is a drama I've seen played out very, <laughs> several times at this point. I don't like this joke. <laughs> Oh, why did we fill this train with TNT? <laughs> if your DeLorean starts doing a wheelie on train tracks, you might be having a bad day. I feel like if a DeLorean did a wheelie, it would explode. <laughs> like, I <laughs> don't cocaine. think they're that stable. Cloud of cocaine. <laughs> Also, this is all just very cool. 
Yeah, at the end of the day, it's like, yeah, this is just a fucking cool movie, man. <laughs> a lot of fun. This makes I'm your ten-year-old so happy. Like, yeah, yeah, theme, subtext, blah, 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 human condition, free will, all that shit. D- Doc Brown's about to ride a fucking hoverboard. Big train, go boom. I do love the train explosion here. They went all out on that motherfucker. It's so good. I can't believe it's a fucking miniature. It's a pretty big miniature, though. It's a big fucking miniature, but you can't tell. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was something that movies in the 90s and early 2000s really started to experiment with, especially uh, like Peter Jackson when he was making the Lord of the Rings movies. The idea of just making gigantic miniatures that you could put all the detail in the world in. I'm so sad Jackson was pretty much the last person to really do that. Oh, yeah. God. Just just thinking of Jackson, the, the opening like credits of The Frighteners, He's got this little tiny pen camera and a wonderful miniature set of a graveyard in a town that he's just swooping through. And it's so cool. Even knowing it's a miniature, in retrospect, you're like, I don't care. I, that, it's way better than if they made like a CGI city and flew a camera around it. And here we go. The most ridiculous explosion in movie history. <laughs> Kerbloom. So, one more Don Coscarelli <laughs> fact, because I'm sure you guys uh, haven't heard enough of those in your life. I just want to say, God damn, did those logs make that thing fucking unstable. Oh, God. Watch what you're doing, Doc, bro. Those weren't logs. Those were jars of nitroglycerin. Anyways, Don Coscarelli was filming one of the Phantasm movies, and they had to have a car do a giant flip. So they had, like, three cameras set up to record the flip because you don't want to do it multiple times. You're putting the stunt driver at risk. Uh, Coscarelli was personally operating one of the cameras, and, like, when the car flips, there's a small bit of explosion that goes with it, and it was more explosives than he was prepared for, so he instinctively closed his eyes. So he was operating the camera blind, because he, like, forced his eyes shut and just went through the camera motions as he thought they were supposed to be. And this was back in the days where they couldn't just immediately review the film. They had to, like, go print dailies to see if it turned out. So Don Coscarelli was lying to everyone to say, oh, yeah, I totally had this great shot. You're going to love it. And then he had to wait, like, three days to get the film developed to find out if he fucked up or not. Also, I goddamn love this DeLorean being destroyed by a train. Oh, that's awesome. This upset me so much as a child. It just no. disintegrates. It's that like they filled it with a bunch adventure. of beer cans. Oh, didn't they, like, rig it with explosives, too, just to make oh, sure. sure it fucking destroyed itself? Yeah. Yeah, cars don't really explode when trains hit them. They just kind of get pushed. <laughs> For a long time. Yeah, smashed it and pushed down the, the line. Less exciting. Well, it's held together with cocaine, so. <laughs> this DeLorean's been so fragile throughout the rest of the series, I'm sure it like, would have fallen apart just from the rumble of the train approaching. How confusing must this have been for pedestrians? Just seeing a sad <laughs> cowboy look ruefully at the ruins of some kind of time-space device. Well, I think, um, I don't know if you know this, there's a deleted scene where um, Cyberdyne Systems actually finds and cleans <laughs> up the mess of the time machine <laughs> and uh, takes the flux capacitor. Now that's how Griff Tech gets started. 
<laughs> so, uh, by the train tracks, there's a sign that mentions Eastwood Ravine, which I really like because in in the 80s, 1880s world that Marty left, originally, you know, there was like Clara Ravine that had to be renamed because Clara didn't die. Which makes me think that everyone back in the 1880s assumed Marty was on that train and died there. It's like, oh, that's where Clint Eastwood died. Let's let's name the ravine after him. And I like how ah, it's just. And I like how once again it's a call back to the um, one pine mall joke that's not paid any attention to. It yeah, took me I honestly just like never that. picked up on that until you pointed it out. <laughs> and it took me years to figure out the fucking Eastwood Ravine joke. I think I'd seen this movie yeah. thousand times. I like that it's Eastwood Ravine, like no one gave a shit about it. Well, I guess Doc is still in the past, so he must have just told everyone Marty was dead. Oh, he horrified all those townspeople by flying back on his hoverboard with his bride in his arms. He like flies in on a hoverboard man. holding his bride, and then he just, zoop, yo, Eastwood's dead, stole a train, it exploded, zoop, flies off again. So, God, Jennifer's poor brain. <laughs> hey, you're still not the real Jennifer. <laughs> Boy, I wish ponchos were very cool, like in today's time. We know you do. I, were, <laughs> I just love ponchos so much, and every episode we do that features ponchos makes me think maybe I'm making a difference in the world, and I'll start convincing <laughs> listeners to wear their ponchos <laughs> with pride. Cody, did you, did you start this podcast just so you could justify that fucking poncho purchase from like six years ago? And how Box many how many episodes poncho. of this podcast has featured fucking ponchos? Not this enough. We one. should do more westerns. We should do more westerns. I'm pretty sure I've told the audience about utility poncho at some point in my life and how he has saved me from many a hassle. I believe so. Oh, it's a he, is it? I mean, it's kind of sexist to always name boats and stuff after women, right? Some guys are useful. It's the personification in general that I find amusement in, Cody. Uh, also, it you're, seems you're... weird to be wearing a lady. Oh, it's Flea! I love Power of Love playing for extra last-minute symmetry. <laughs> <laughs> also, uh, okay, prove me wrong. Flea is putting on a Anton Yelkin performance years before Anton Yelkin was a thing. Oh my god, yes. Yes, yes he is. Does that mean that, Anton okay. based his like a lot of his acting style I, on Flea in this movie? Look at it. Specifically Needle. Possibly. Look! That's Anton Yelkin there. I don't care what anybody says. So, uh, man, your, your Flea thing was more fun than mine. I was just going to say that Flea's birth name is Michael Peter Balzeri. That's that's all I got. Not nearly as cool. Nah, that's a pretty metal name. Not as good as Flea. I kind of wish these guys just got creamed by that car and they all died. Just to really I know. Cool that would have been right so choice. good. <laughs> now he like, can't be his boss in the future. Fucking disturbing close-ups of Flea's like mangled arms skidding across the highway. <laughs> Thank God I held on to this paper. It's worthless. Little do, does Jennifer know, like, taking in that paper from the future also creates Griftech. 
more confusing. Marty travels at this point in time, then leaves for probably a couple hours. He gets into a race with another dude. He has to pick up his girlfriend. He has to go see his family. Then goes back to the side of the wreckage right when Doc shows up. I feel like Doc made this time travel trip like five times just to just perfect to get right. timing. <laughs> like to get his grand en- entrance perfect. Also, I love how this picture is ripped just to avoid any conflict with whether or not Marty would appear in it. Because <laughs> they do not want to solve that question. What? No, Marty would definitely be in the photo. He traveled to the past, they took his picture, and then he traveled to the future. No, but it was a pre-existing photo from a different timeline. Eh, I still think he'd be there. Listen, this we're gonna train start pulling is the coolest fucking out. thing in the world. Yeah, we are, we're going to Bruce Willis this thing. It's steampunk. <laughs> and so, the Doc Brown's adventure outfit. Steam seems like such a silly choice to power this train. He was using plutonium before. It seems cleaner. Yeah, it's more available. We get I love it, that you he's just the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> <laughs> so this, this is a very weird personal hang-up, and I understand it's not a legitimate complaint, but I'm still going to raise it. For okay. some reason, a flying DeLorean makes perfect sense to me. Like, oh, that's not goofy. That makes sense. A flying steampunk train, I go, it's a step too far. For me, for some reason, I see that, I'm like, this is too silly. It probably used more energy to lift it off the ground than to travel through time. Right? A flying car is fine. A flying train is stupid. Also, I am convinced that Vernie's personality in the Back to the Future cartoon was based solely on how much of an asshole this kid looks like. (laughs) (laughs) like he's giving a weird scud fargus performance (laughs) despite not having any dialogue (laughs) he's just got one of those personas and that kid really really wants to show his dick to elizabeth shoe (laughs) exactly like watching the build up to the dick point is the funniest thing in the world because you can see the journey he goes on (laughs) Including really... nudging the other kid as if to say, hey, eh, I'm going to point to eh, my dick. Eh. <laughs> didn't they remove and then in the look last... directly into the camera. Didn't they release the remove in the last Blu-ray release? Uh, I know the, on the one I've got, it's still in there. Uh, maybe that was just a rumor. I didn't really pay attention last time I watched. <laughs> oh, I, I slowed know. it down and watched it several train. times. Do you really want to admit to that? well it's just i it's not the dick point i'm obsessed with the gesture forward the beckon to the audience that he gives before touching his dick like oh yeah you're gonna want to zoom in on this jamie uh important question when you when you were doing this (laughs) were you high at all I was stone cold sober. Sober as Strickland, my friend. Sober as Strickland. (laughs) Okay, hold on here. We've spent roughly six hours sitting down to comment on these movies live and many more hours writing notes and reviewing all the making of features and movies. And this is what we end on. Our our big combination here is (laughs) look at this kid pointing at his dick. That is all our the future is what you make of it. So make it a good one.
We we just had Doc like give his big emotional speech, and we went. It seems schmaltzy. I want to make fun of that train and make fun of the kid pointing at his dick. We we That's... said smart stuff in there. <laughs> hey, remember the time uh, Benedict Cumberbatch was on that podcast where he had just rewatched this and noticed the dick for the first time? It was like, just why would a child do that? That's going to be in a movie forever. Well, I've honestly, I've honestly never noticed this in my life. I didn't know that was a thing until now. The internet discovered it like all at once, like six years ago. Yeah. No one had apparently ever noticed because that scene is so beautiful. They're always looking at Doc. I've always just been so mad about the train. I couldn't pay attention to anything else. <laughs> this bullshit whirly gigs and steam gears. It's ridiculous stuff. <laughs> We're really just falling apart at the very end. We had it so... We had it so together. Can, can uh, I just say the most on-brand Cody rant I've ever heard is fucking bullshit whirly gigs. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> they spent so yeah. much time making that train like a real practical effect with all the stupid zippity zaps and wait, whirly wait, pops. Wait, shut up for a second. <laughs> Broad Roylance. We cannot let that name pass by without comment. <laughs> <laughs> that is incredible. I'm pointing at the screen right now. <laughs> is he from the Old West? Also, Flea was just cre uh, credited as Flea. I like that. He doesn't have to worry about there being other Fleas out there, so he doesn't have to give like a nickname or a last name, a middle initial. It's just Flea. He's the only one in the Screen Actors Guild. Uh, could you imagine the troll of him wanting to be credited as Michael J. Flea? <laughs> the third. Well, I'm disappointed he just stuck with Flea. But uh, to go back to the actual fucking movie for a moment. Hurry up, and the not the train. Uh, that that other than the kid pointing to his dick, I <laughs> am amazed at how fucking beautifully the series ends with that scene. Like that is such a heart felt scene whenever i'm not noticing the kid pointing at his dick it always brings me to tears yeah i was always a little sad that doc and marty are super good friends and doc's just like eh you know i got kids now i only visit like once every 10 years apparently <laughs> i'm out bud like oh come on i know you just got married and you're enjoying traveling through time but you, you can make some some you know time for your best bud cody if you were married to mary steam virgin in her prime would you do anything else than make kids with her in your flying train? You know, eventually a man's got to recharge. And during those times, he can sit down and have a nice beer in the 1980s with his buddy. No, he goes to 2015 and gets a, rejuvenate, a rejuvenating bath. That's and extends true. his life another hundred years. Doc is essentially immortal. He knows he can just go into the future 30 years and have like all of his cells replaced. Once we again, got it's just Rick and Morty. There's no we, difference. We got dumb again. Like, for a second, <laughs> Jamie pulled it back together, and we got dumb again. She should have tried harder. <laughs> that That's the main... That's our great point. That's, that's the uh, reverse-engineered moral to these trilogy of commentaries. Like, I, I just didn't try hard enough. <laughs> I uh going back just, to the ending though. It's been though. very sad to me like Marty loses his best friend. Marriage man, it's sad. <laughs> but he's got Elizabeth's shoe and his riches. He's doing all right. It's true. 
Yeah, he does he have can a new whip truck. Biff at any point, like it's fucking Castle Freak. But um, <laughs> I, um... <laughs> I'm sorry, man. That was a good one. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, the mental image. <laughs> I love how there's like six people right now who are head. laughing, and everyone else is like, what the fuck is Castle Freak? Biff just grasping onto his matchbooks. <laughs> the memory of a better time. Um, I am like so impressed that the bullshit bullshitted together final message of this movie tracks for the entire trilogy like that's what something that's blown blown my mind away about revisiting these movies specifically for this commentary and really really digging deep into them a lot of things i took for granted or just made jokes like oh this wasn't supposed to work this way but you know they they retcon this all that and that's it's it's true of maybe how it started for a lot of the stuff but no, all of this works beautifully. Like, these three movies work together back to back to back with a final message perfectly. And I, I've never I've never appreciated that enough. It's very impressive. Like, there are so many film trilogies intentionally produced to have messages that track less than the messages of Back to the Future. Like, sit down and try to tell me what the Matrix trilogy means as a whole. <laughs> there are philosophy books about that. It's open to interpretation. I'm so glad the uh, credits fucking uh, faded out after you said that. It's good timing. <laughs> that was very good timing. Uh, so there you have it, folks. Back to the Future. One, two, three... All done, and I'm assuming we will never get it back to the future four, so we're freed forever. Uh, well, we have to do a series of Let's Plays on the Telltale Back to the Future game. Oh, that'd be fun. Anyways, folks, if you've enjoyed this, we have many other commentaries and commentary-free episodes. You can find us under the title Box Office Pulp. We're all over the internet. You can find us on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on iTunes, Stitcher. Get after us. Leave a review. Share. Like. Tell your friends and family we're your only lovers. I'm, they can't tell, but I'm making direct eye contact with everyone listening right now to make sure they understand oh, how much I mean this. That's so unsettling. Why did this become they live at the end? Every Box step office you pulp tells you to consume. <laughs> it's true, though. Box <laughs> office pulp does tell you to consume. Thanks for listening. That's a wrap. Get the hell out of here. And I just want you to know, your podcast subscriptions... Or what you make of them. Could so we, subscribe to a good podcast. Could could we just steal some music and have Sting playing? Like, every breath you take, I'll be watching you. Right after the really creepy <laughs> outro. <laughs> See, I was just thinking we'd uh, just play uh, the sound of the train taking off with the beautiful Alan Silvestri score. And then just cut to a horrifying train wreck noise with people screaming. <laughs> Oh, the humanity! Oh. It oh, immediately God. fell out of the sky! Why did he think he could fly on steam? It was powered by steam! He needed plutonium! That's a full train! You get more out of life when you go out to a movie.
Please remember to replace the speaker on the post when you leave the theater. It's true, though. Steam Train's bullshit for flight. I don't care what Doc says. He may be smarter than me, but he's wrong. Is this your chicken, Cody? Like, is your character arc that you are always blinded by your hatred of trains? There's there's things in movies that get to me. Uh, flying steam trains is one of them, and the way hooks are used in horror movies. <laughs> Those are my bugaboos. So, let's combine the two. So, Gomez would piss you off. Just... <laughs> No, you said let's combine the two, and I'm imagining a giant steam-powered hook just flying through the air, murdering people by slicing them in half, even though it's a goddamn rounded hook. See, now I'm imagining <laughs> Raul Julia as Gomez Adams in that scene. Oh, your future is what you make of it. So make it a good one. I really like that we, we somehow... <laughs> I really like that we somehow managed to play telephone with all of us having perfectly functional ears and talking to each other in real time. <laughs> You just described box office pulp. Yeah, dude. I've rebranded the show. It's now box office poncho. All the stickers with the acronym can, you know, we don't have to throw them out. It's nice. I'm amazed it took us, like, what, seven years to get to box office poncho? (laughs) I'm telling you, we don't do enough westerns on this podcast. (laughs) Next week, Silverado. This is box office pulp guy, and this has been a pulp podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show.